Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Taking Issue podcast. I'm Corey Smith. You know, some say the 2024 presidential election is shaping up to be a repeat of 2020, pitting two seasoned politicians, President Joe Biden and Donald Trump, against one another. While it may be a rematch, what's happening this year is unprecedented. Donald Trump is on pace to win the Republican Party's nomination after being charged 91 times in four different criminal cases, ranging from election interference to hoarding classified materials. Not to mention he's already been convicted in a civil fraud case or the fact that a federal jury has found him liable for sexual abuse. In other words, this is not normal. Heather Cox Richardson is a history professor at Boston College. Back in 2019, during former President Trump's first impeachment trial, she started to write a daily essay on Facebook, chronicling history as it unfolded. That turned into a daily Substack newsletter in which she examines the political news of the day through the lens of history. And it's the most popular political Substack in America with millions of subscribers. Heather has written a book called Democracy Awakening. And while the title may seem optimistic, the book examines how we arrived at this moment in history with our democracy seemingly on the brink. I spoke with her and our conversation started with where her book ended. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment and this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start our interview with where your book ends. You say, once again, we are at a time of testing. How it comes out rests, as it always has, in our own hands. It feels to me like part of the test is whether Donald Trump is reelected, because as we've seen over the last several years, he's embraced authoritarians around the world using their language and their behavior. Right now, it looks like he is moving rapidly to lock down the Republican nomination. How concerned are you that, that America might fail this democracy test? I'm concerned that the United States might reelect Donald Trump, but not because of the voters. I think in a free and fair election, there's no doubt that he would be rejected. I am much more concerned about the degree to which radical Republicans have sewn up what I call the nodes of democracy in the states that are really going to matter in 2024 for the, the Trump vote, like Florida, like Texas. And you know that there's an issue in those states because of the rate at which the people in charge of the states have removed drop boxes, for example, or have engaged in different methods of voter support. It's clear they recognize that in a free and fair vote, the Republicans wouldn't be running nearly as strongly as they are. So if, in fact, we had uh, a free and fair vote in all the states in the union, I, I wouldn't be concerned at all. But where we are right now suggests to me that there's a small minority that is trying to exert its will over the rest of us. And that's deeply concerning. We hear those folks in Congress a lot of times referred to as sort of the enablers of Donald Trump. Is that is that an accurate, I guess, portrayal? And what role do those uh, elected officials, maybe Supreme Court justices, uh, elected judges play uh, in, in this sort of danger to democracy? Well, we have to remember that this didn't happen overnight. Trump is the outcome of 40 years of, uh, of the radical right for suppressing the vote and, and garnering additional power through gerrymandering, for example, and from uh, and a certain kind of rhetoric that they used to cement the idea that they were good Americans who were standing against those people who wanted a handout of tax dollars when had not deserved it, you know, people of color and women, for example. So he is the, the outcome of a long period of uh, this, this change in our society. Trump changed that, of course, when he was in office to turn what had been a rhetorical strategy into a movement. So the... Um, 
the enablers are those who had set up that argument to begin with. But then once he got into power, the idea that certain people went along with him, and I, I, I retain an extraordinary fury for the Republican senators who knew all along that they could stop him and should stop him in, for example, for his first impeachment trial, and of course in a second one as well, but quite literally said, we're not going to do this because what's really at stake is our power in the upcoming election. So there are a number of people who should have called an end to what's going on, who still could call an end to what is going on, and who are standing back because of their own quest for power, I think, and to some degree, we know now out of fear as well. Is there, what is their benefit then? Because we, we have seen folks who stood behind President Trump, who supported him in, in his election, also be punished by President Trump for speaking out against them. I guess, is are you seeing them sort of do this sort of balancing act with I, I want to speak out on behalf of democracy, if you will, but I also want to retain power, as you said. Well, there's a lot that goes on when you encourage a strong man, for sure. And there are a number of different things, different patterns among individuals who decide to, to follow somebody like that. But there is also something going on that I think is worth calling out. And that is when Donald Trump in the present is threatening people, he's certainly complaining about those people who don't support him outside the Republican Party. But what he's really trying to do is consolidate power within the Republican Party. The threats that he made last week, for example, against Nick Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, who's running against him, the ways in which he is trying to say to Republicans, hey, you're either with me or you are. we are throwing you outside the party. You're not going to have any power going forward. That's significant. And it's significant not only because he's trying to take control of the Republican Party with all of its, um, its apparatus to elect somebody, but also because um, what it says about what's happening right now in the, the on the American in the American Southwest and in places like Texas, where you have, I think, really quite deliberately the attempt of a minority to take over a majority, and the reality that they are not trying to include more people in their coalitions. So when Trump is actually talking about getting people to elect him, he is not trying to broaden his base. He's trying to, to make it smaller, to make it smaller and to make it more intense. And that's a really interesting thing going into the election of 2024, because if, in fact, you're running a normal American campaign, you're trying to get as many voters behind you as you possibly can. You're trying to moderate your principles. You're trying to, to bring people in who might otherwise not be enthusiastic about your candidacy. He's doing the opposite. He's basically saying even to other Republicans, hey, you're with me with my avowed attempts at authoritarianism. He has talked about for example, weaponizing the Department of Justice and weaponizing the, the Department of Defense and getting rid of our nonpartisan civil servants that we've had since 1883 and replacing them with loyalists and getting rid of freedom of the press and even getting rid of term limits. So he's, he's making it very clear what he wants. And he's saying, you either get behind me on this project or I don't want to have any part of you. So what does that say when you go forward into 2024? What is their strategy for putting him in the White House? It is not a strategy of including more people in that coalition. It seems to me it is clearly a strategy of finding a way to take that election, even though the majority of us don't want that to happen. And that's something I think we really ought to be paying attention to in the upcoming months, to watch and see where those pressure points are. And of course, right now, after what happened last week on the border of Texas, that's what I'm looking at right now to see how that's going to play out and what the intent behind it seems to be. We heard in 2016 a lot of folks who were, I guess, establishment Republicans say, 
we can contain him. I know he says, you know, strange things and even scary things, but we can contain him. Obviously, that was not the case moving over the course of his presidency. You're hearing less of that now, um, but I do wonder what is the danger in, in sort of, I guess, maybe normalizing this behavior or just brushing it aside and saying, oh, he, he misspoke or he doesn't actually mean that he's just sort of playing to his audience? Well, it's hugely dangerous. And you see that in the rise of any strong man. There are always people, and they're not necessarily people of ill intent. They might be people who simply don't want the drama of extraordinary politics in their lives. You see people saying, oh, it's not going to be that bad. Oh, you're overreacting. Oh, it's not that big a deal. Oh, no, don't worry about this. We can we can contain this. Oh, he didn't mean to say that. And that's not just happening around somebody like Trump. That happens anytime you see a strong man rise. And you, they look at people who are calling out the alarm and say, oh, you're worrying too much. It's not going to be that bad. We can control him. Well, quite literally, the people who were in Donald Trump's first administration, the adults in the room, as they called themselves, and sometimes were called by others, those ones who provided the, the guardrails are now out in front of the cameras saying he is not going to be contained. He has gotten rid of all the people who might stop him. He is talking about getting rid of, for example, those in the Department of Justice who said, now you really can't start banning everybody coming from this country, for example, or you really can't do these other things that you wanted to do. They will all be gone. So the idea that he can be contained, well, maybe you could argue that in 2016 and even in 2017, right up until the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. But this time around, even those people who were in charge of putting guardrails up around him are saying, do not delude yourselves into thinking it's not going to be bad this time, because without those guardrails, without people like us, and he's made it very clear we won't be there, you're going to be facing a dictator. And, and you know, for that matter, He's saying that. And that's what's so astonishing and so extraordinary about this moment is that there is always political spin in any American election. There are always people saying things that are maybe not quite true. There are some people making warnings that maybe are a bit over the top. In this case, it is literally the former president who is saying, this is what I'm going to do. And one of the reasons he says that, I think, is because he wants to to give the impression that he is invincible, that this is going to happen, that he is going to be a strong man. And the truth is, he's not that strong a candidate this time around. And I think he's trying to convince people he's much stronger than he really is. Are there any points in history where we, we've seen a, a, a society or a government come to this point where you can either vote for a strong man or elect someone else and take your democracy back? Have we seen either outcome happen over the course of history? Well, certainly, we look a lot like a number of other periods in American history, although this is a unique time in that it is the first time that we have a major modern uh, political party in a, in, a, in a modern democracy, which has a lot of apparatus with it, deliberately embracing the end of democracy, embracing authoritarianism in the United States. Of course, it's happened elsewhere in places like Viktor Orban's Hungary, for example, to which people like Donald Trump and his supporters look for inspiration, incidentally. But what's interesting about this moment moment to me is something that's maybe a little different and maybe something you didn't expect to hear about because you wanted to talk about the book. But of course, I'm very interested in what's happening at the Texas border that really blew up last week when the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, 
uh, announced. I, in fact, what he did is much less that you, than you're hearing in the media, but announced that Texas had the right of self-defense. And it seems pretty clear that he is doing that because of his own weak position within Texas after his signature issue, school vouchers, blew up last year. And with Texas's extreme abortion ban, which has caused enormous anger among the, the white suburban women vote that the Republicans need so badly to stay in power. So he's really turning to, to the idea of immigration and this idea of a crisis on the border as being something that is, is the Democrats, especially Biden and Biden's uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, are terribly weak on. And, and of course, there's a lot we could talk about with that. But what I wanted to point to with that issue was that it is not at all unlike what was happening in the American South before the Civil War. The same place where you see the reality dawning on the um, the Democrats in the American South, the elite enslavers who control the Democratic Party there, that they are losing power and they're in real danger of losing power. And so they start this argument that they should be able to do it themselves and they should be able to have their own country. And they, they really push that idea, actually during the Christmas season of 1860, and they get a lot of hot-headed people behind them. And the thing about that moment that I'm watching really closely right now in our present is that what began as sort of a rhetorical way to get people to support you in your beliefs about the way your own state should run got its own momentum. So the people who started it ended up getting carried along with it and ended up, I think, beginning a war and, and running with a war that they never really intended to have. There's a very famous statement in the before the Civil War in which a famous uh, Southerner says, yeah, it's never going to be violent. I personally will drink all the blood that spilled in the oh. Civil War. So this idea that people get pushed along through their rhetoric and societies end up sort of tripping into violence that they didn't intend to is something that is really interesting in this moment. I don't think actually we're going that way for different reasons in our present, but I'm watching that happen and I'm thinking, would you people please read some history? Because this, this very rarely goes in a good direction. We know that you've spoken and sat down with President Biden. He was pictured holding your book over the holiday season. What do you think he gets out of having conversations with historians like yourselves as he sort of takes this test on the, on the home front to, to keep democracy afloat? What historians do is we study how and why societies change. So you can look a lot at what's happening on the ground and say, well, today this happened and that happened and that happened. But what historians do is we take that evidence and we look at the patterns that it establishes and where those patterns put pressure on a society to change or not to change. So I think what he gets out of talking with us is, first of all, a lot of arguments, but second of all, because that's what we do, that's what academics do. Um, but I think he also gets a sense of what might matter going forward? What can change societies going forward? We know campaigning is all about messaging. He's got to run on the economy and things like that. But how do you distill down to the average voter the, the threat to democracy that we're facing? Well, you know, I'm not entirely sure he is going to run on the economy, with the exception of the fact the economy, of course, is roaring, and there's a much larger political story there. I think what is really on the table now is democracy. And the, the great thing about that is we have had democracy on the ballot in the United States on at least four other occasions. And when that has happened, people have come together, regardless of their 
beliefs about particular political policies and regardless of their partisanship to say, listen, we may not agree about internal improvements and we may not agree about tariffs and we may not agree about immigration and we may not agree about financial policy, but by God, we can agree that people should be treated equally before the law and have a right to a say in their government. And I actually think that's what it's going to come down to this year, not least because we are looking at an election, a presidential election, for the first time in our history, after which a Supreme Court that was packed with um, justices by Donald Trump, his three, uh, his three Supreme Court justices, that ceased to recognize a constitutional right that had been recognized for 50 years. Now, there's a reason in the law that we tend to preserve law, we tend to stabilize the law because people become accustomed to the rights they have, they become accustomed to the way society works. This is the first time we have had a Supreme Court come in and say, well, no, actually that right that you relied on, it doesn't exist anymore. And I think that that's gonna turn a lot of people out, whether or not they care particularly about reproductive rights or abortion, but because of the recognition that if you can put a Supreme Court in place that can take away a right that's been established for 50 years, what else can they take away? And I think that that's going to end up being very salient going forward. Well, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us here on Taking Issue. It's a fascinating subject, an engaging conversation, and one that I think is really important as we head towards the November election. That'll do it for this edition of Taking Issue. I'm Corey Smith. We'll talk to you next week. 